You share more traits in common with your siblings than you do with your cousins due to the recent ancestors you share with them, your parents. Deeper down, you share more in common with those in your extended family than you do with neighbors and classmates, etc., people you don't recognize as part of your biological family. But you must realize that on some level, you're still related. Deeper down, one could likely recognize subtle indications of cultural themes, which most people will still agree all descend from one common ancestral lineage, despite their current apparent diversity in unfamiliar ways. Deeper down, we've seen that new breeds of barnyard birds, domestic pets, livestock, corn, even bananas have to some degree been engineered by human intervention via artificial selection, and new subspecies have occurred in the wild via natural selection. In both cases, these stem from common ancestry, be that hundreds of breeds of dogs coming from one strain of wolves or dozens of commercial bovines being derived from the now-extinct European aurochs. All these reveal that life is a fluid dynamic, producing new and subtle variation with every descendant. But evolution only occurs when new alleles are spread throughout a given community. This is where selection comes into play, because the parent gene pool actually does more to inhibit new aberrations than to promote them. A smaller gene pool is much easier to influence, so what you usually get are more significant changes emerging in smaller colonies that have been genetically isolated from the main population. Eventually, they may get to the point where the two groups are distinct, where a trait now held in common by every member of one group is not shared by any member of the other group. This is known as a subspecies, or breed. If the two groups resume interbreeding, then all that may meld together again as if it had never been, but if they're isolated long enough, they will continue to drift further apart, both physically and genetically, until it becomes difficult to interbreed at all anymore. Eventually, they'll only be able to sire infertile hybrids if they can still produce anything living. At the point when two sexually reproductive populations can no longer interbreed with viable offspring, then they have become two different species. This is the most significant level in the whole of phylogenetics, when the daughter strain is now unrestrained by the once dominant parent gene pool and is therefore free to express an even greater variance, thus continually widening the gap between them. This is a practical parallel of what creationists call the addition of new information. Speciation is the only taxonomic division which is genetically significant and is the only one which can be objectively determined, so it is the only possible point of division between the largely unnecessary distinctions of macro and microevolution. The theory is perfectly valid at that level of minor changes that do not produce new kinds of organisms and that above all do not add to the genetic information. Breeders are able to produce change only within boundaries. Even those dogs are all members of a single biological species, which are chemically interfertile. Uh, we don't get dogs getting bigger and bigger indefinitely, as big as elephants or whales, much less changing into elephants or whales. And the claim that if selective breeding hasn't produced the kind of macro changes, the kinds of new forms of life, new complex organs uh, that are needed, that's only because there hasn't been enough time. Creationists insist that macroevolution has never been observed, and the excuse they use to deny that it has requires the addition of a bogus condition that simply does not apply. Creationists argue that evolution can only occur within definite limits, and then only to subtle variants within their kind. They say new diversity is limited to rare and inviolable hybrids between those kinds, and they usually say that the emergence of new species is impossible. No Darwinist would ever say any of these things. Sorry, Stein, but you've lost your mind. In the evolutionary perspective, any single ancestral species can diverge into two or more daughter species, each becoming so distinct that eventually either of the new species would be unable to interbreed with the ancestral and or sister species anymore. 
But by ignoring fossil forms, the creationist perspective has that completely backwards, insisting instead on an illusory sequence of separately conjured kinds which, like information, must remain forever undefined, and they imagine that evolutionary diversity can only occur by mixing these kinds in hybridization. This is another reason they reject transitional fossils and instead demand some blend only between current kinds. Their perspective has no depth. Creationists may refuse to acknowledge geologic timescales and cannot admit that any new organism might be unable to interbreed with the stock from whence it came because their sacred fables say they were created each after their own kind. But of course they can't say what a kind is either because it's impossible to identify any point in taxonomy where everything that ever lived isn't evidently related to everything else. So they largely ignore phylogenetics altogether. Creationists have to deny macroevolution for the same reason they have to deny transitional species, not because these combined realities can only indicate an animal ancestry, but because either one alone proves that such is at least possible and creationists are not permitted to admit even that. If it is possible to walk 20 feet, it's possible to walk 20 miles. So creationists insist there must be some definite boundary blocking the evolution of new kinds, but they won't say what or where that boundary is. Creationists habitually misdefine their terms if they can be forced to use definitions at all because they will not be accountable. They can't be because they've decided in advance never to change their minds even if they're proven wrong. If they were to find out that macroevolution was ever actually seen and proven to happen for certain, their cultish faith would still forbid them to admit it. Instead, they'd have to redefine their terms to move the goalpost to some higher taxonomic level, but not so high as to have to admit where humans belong in the families of apes. But now we know there really is no level above species, because every other grade in taxonomy is more or less arbitrarily assigned as a construct of human convenience. The Linnaean ranks of family, genus, order, and phyla are all factually illustrated but virtually meaningless otherwise because every new taxonomic class that ever evolved began with speciation, the emergence of a distinctly new species but one that was still just a modified version of whatever its parents were, and whose eventual descendants will always belong to whatever categories their ancestors did also, no matter how much they may change as time goes on. The only reason creationists cling to these micro and macro distinctions is so they can have some excuse to accept small-scale evolution, which they begrudgingly admit cannot be denied even with the greatest faith, while still denying large-scale evolution where the exact parameter of how large must remain elusive to prevent it ever being disproved. Of course, that means large-scale evolution can mean whatever they want it to at that moment. Frank Sherwin from the Institute of Creation Research recently defined microevolution as the origin of every kind of animal, and later on in the same discussion he changed his definition to the origin of all life. He knows he's using the terms incorrectly. He simply doesn't care. But the fact is, he doesn't get to conveniently redefine what these terms have always meant to the scientists who invented those words in the first place. According to universities actually teaching this subject, microevolution is variation within species and macroevolution is variation between species. The different breeds of dogs are an example of microevolution, while the different species of wolves and foxes, panthers and felines, horses and zebras, and llamas and camels are all examples of macroevolution. Each set is definitely biologically closely related, but they're each different species, not different kinds of the same one. Macroevolution is properly defined as the emergence of new taxa at or above the species level. The only time creationists will use the proper definition is when they are as yet unaware of the fact that speciation has already been directly observed and documented dozens of times both in the lab and in naturally controlled conditions in the field. 
In fact, we've seen it so many times, we've had to categorize recurrent types of macroevolution we've seen so often repeated. Once creationists find out about all this, their first reaction is to use the excuse that some newly evolved species of fruit fly or fish somehow still doesn't count because it's still a fly or it's still a fish. Well, of course it is. Evolution couldn't permit them to be anything else. Creationists demand that new species be so different from their parents that one can't even tell they're related. The irony there is that evolutionary theory never suggests that one kind of thing ever turned into another fundamentally different kind of anything, not unless you ignore all the intermediate stages, which of course creationists do. To comprehend evolutionary theory, one must first understand that it's only ever a matter of changing proportions, altering or enhancing existing features to build on what is already there. Developmental biology, genetics, and comparative morphology combine to confirm many of these taxonomic stages such that organs do not seem to have appeared abruptly or fully formed as if out of nowhere because there is always an implied evolutionary origin evident in every case. Even the transition of fish to tetrapods, dinosaurs to birds, or apes to men are each just a matter of incremental superficial changes being slowly compiled atop successive tiers of fundamental similarities. These represent monophyletic clades, which will forever encompass all the descendants of that clade. This is why birds are still dinosaurs and humans are still apes and both are still stegocephalian chordates. No matter how much you or your heirs may change, you obviously can't outgrow heredity. The very concept of common ancestry is a multi-tiered and intertwined complex phylogenetic system which shows why there can't be any distinctly separate kinds to begin with. At the same time, the act of speciation splits the population, presenting an eventually impassable boundary between them. We often see this demonstrated live in the form of ring species, where different evolutionary stages exist all at once in a geographic rather than chronological distribution. Subspecies A may breed with subspecies B, and B may breed with C, and C with D, but A and D cannot interbreed because by the time their territories overlap again, they've grown too distant genetically and can't come back. This is when we see the formation of new features, organs, or skeletal structures, each examples of new genetic information. What all these show is that even though a new species of perching bird, for example, is still a finch, it is now a different kind of finch, a distinct descendant species proving there is no boundary against macroevolution. Paleontology in the early days was a difficult discipline. We had to devise a way to test and confirm the claims that were made because 19th century pioneers were often confused by their own preconceptions and often made simple mistakes that went undiscovered for decades. Unwary professors were sometimes made the victims of pranks, and not every respected scientist was entirely honest. For example, Sir Richard Owen was a celebrated biologist and foremost authority on paleofauna in the world in his time. He was credited with the establishment of the British Museum of Natural History and of inventing the word dinosaur, but he did so by suppressing the work of other scientists and taking credit for their discoveries himself. Owen was not well liked. He had a reputation of never admitting his own mistakes, and he was often described as dishonest, malicious, and hateful. He was devoutly religious, but he was also a leading anatomist and zoologist, respected and unrivaled in each of these fields, and he was both Darwin's superior and fiercest adversary. Unlike Darwin, Owen believed religion should guide and even override scientific research. Throughout history, there have been many scientists who believed the universe was created in the same sense that Christian proponents of natural sciences still believe today. But those men who believed in God and made historic contributions to science still relied on necessarily natural methodology because that is the only way science can progress. In many cases, they found natural explanations for things previously believed to be miraculous, and they only succeeded when they did not allow religious convictions to subvert or inhibit their inquiry. None of them were able to vindicate the Bible stories, and their efforts to do so only ever indicated another origin. 
Thus, these men wouldn't have supported creationism as we know it today, and many of them wouldn't have been creationists if they'd understood evolution. But Richard Owen was a creation scientist, both in the sense that he preferred magical manifestations to material mechanisms, and because he deliberately misrepresented evidence in an attempt to mislead others into believing as he did. For example, Darwin said that if his theory were true, then we should find a sort of proto-bird with unfused wing fingers, and two years later, we did. Confronted with this, Owen admitted that Archaeopteryx was a peculiar bird, but he dismissed it as just a bird and not exactly what Darwin had predicted. He couldn't honestly accept or admit a transitional species, so Owen largely ignored Archaeopteryx saurian features and went on to argue how it couldn't have evolved from reptiles by distinguishing its anatomy from pterosaurs rather than from dinosaurs. Thomas Huxley exposed Owen's deceptive analysis when he published his own counter-examination. Owen also promised his religious fellows that he would succeed where Linnaeus had failed in finding some physical trait to distinguish humans from apes, whether it was really the case or not. First he presented similarities as differences, and then when he couldn't find any legitimate differences, he made up entirely fictitious ones. As if his authority would always remain unquestioned, he proclaimed amid other scientists in peer review that the hippocampus minor was a uniquely human lobe of the brain and absent among apes. Such an expert as he couldn't have made such an obvious mistake, and his curious inability to concede any error except by way of evasive maneuver finally allowed Huxley to indict him for perjury. We have to admit that there is as little interval as animals between the gorilla and the man as there is between the gorilla and the baboon. who has ever dissected the brain of an ape agrees with Professor Owen. His findings are wrong. Although Owen gave many lectures, wrote hundreds of scientific papers, and received honors, lands, and titles from the crown, he was also accused throughout his career of deliberate deceit, of lying for God and for malice, and even of writing anonymous letters to the press, praising himself in third person while raving disdain against his colleagues. Finally, Sir Richard Owen was dismissed from the Royal Society Zoological Council amid myriad charges of plagiarism. Owen believed in common archetypes rather than a common ancestor, and his conduct presents an archetype of the modern creation sciences, except that they submit to peer review rarely, if ever, and none of them are experts in anything. They've never produced any research indicative of their position, they cannot substantiate any of their assertions, and they've never successfully refuted anyone else's hypotheses either. But every argument of evidence they've ever made in favor of creation has been refuted immediately and repeatedly. All they've ever been able to do was criticize real science, and even then the absolute best arguments they've ever come up with were all disproved in a court of law with mountains of research standing against their every allegation. Yet, creationists still use those same ridiculous rationalizations because they will never accept when their beliefs are in error. Their only notable strength is how anyone can be so consistently proven to be absolutely wrong about absolutely everything 100% of the time for such a long time and still make believe theirs is the absolute truth. More amazing still is how often they will actually lie in defense of their alleged truth. Every publication promoting creation over any avenue of actual science contains misquotes, misdefinitions, and misrepresented misinformation, while their every appeal to reason is based entirely on erroneous assumptions and logical fallacies. There is a madness to their method, but it is not but propaganda. We don't believe in evolution. Evolution is the idea some people have to explain life without God. No. Evolution is science, and as such, it is a way of explaining life without magic. There's a difference. Even at the kindergarten level, science is defined as a way of learning about the natural world. Natural meaning in accordance with the laws of nature. Nature is further defined as the sum of all forces or phenomena in the entirety of perceptible reality. 
Everything that really exists has properties, and anything that can be objectively indicated, measured, and tested is therefore natural. The supernatural is contrasted with this, being defined as that which is beyond the material universe, outside our reality. A transcendent, dreamlike dimension, indistinguishable from the illusions of imagination, independent of, and even defiant of, physical laws, and thus neither detectable nor describable by science. <laughs> The evocation of inexplicable paranormal forces or supernatural entities to influence natural events or phenomena are usually described as miracles but are also clearly magic by definition. Creationists contend that they don't believe in magic, but speaking anything into existence is an incantation, and the Bible is full of spells of one sort or another. Animating golems or conjuring interdependent systems and causing complex organisms to appear out of thin air are each logically implausible and physically impossible according to everything we know about anything at all, yet this is exactly what religiously motivated pseudoscientists actually promote. How do we test these ideas? How can we tell them apart from any of the thousands of fables men have concocted for the ghosts and gods of other religions? How do we tell whether any of this is even real and not something someone just made up? Because despite anyone's assertions of personal conviction, it is impossible to distinguish miracles from subjective impressions imagined out of nothing. In the realm of fantasy, it's easy to demonstrate psionic talents, astral entities, and magical manifestations. Until they do that in reality, too, then science has nothing but nature to work with. Those who know the necessity of naturalism can list millions of practical advantages that continue to come from that. So science requires a way to weed fiction from function through independent verification and the process of elimination. Natural science works. Creation science doesn't. That's why faith healers don't work in hospitals. The National Academy of Sciences defines it as a systematic enterprise of gathering knowledge about the world and organizing and condensing that knowledge into testable laws and theories, a definition further endorsed by the Academic Press Dictionary of Science and Technology. Fraudulent faith healers and evangelical charlatans often say that creationism is scientific, but there's utterly no verifiably accurate evidence behind any of their assertions and no way to construct any hypothesis to explain any of their claims because no experiments could possibly support them and faith prohibits believers from ever admitting when their notions would be falsified. Creationists are therefore unable to add to the sum of knowledge and instead only offer excuses trying to actually reduce what we already know. They've no way to recognize their own flaws and won't correct them so they can neither confirm nor improve their accuracy, but that's all real science is or does. Consequently, since the dawn of rational thought, the advancement of science has been retarded by the minions of mysticism, and profound revelations have often been opposed or suppressed by the greater part of the dominant religion, because dogmatic faith is not based on reason, and zealots will not be reasoned with. So this is a war the world views, and uh, all science is creation science. Would we agree with that this evening? All science is creation science. All truth is God's truth. And certainly science is the search for truth. Science is a search for truth, whatever the truth may turn out to be, even if it's evidently not what we wanted to believe it was. In science, it doesn't matter what you believe. All that matters is why you believe it. This is why real science disallows faith, promising instead to remain objective, to follow wherever the evidence leads, and either correct or reject any and all errors along the way, even if it challenges whatever we think we know now. But creationist organizations post written declarations of their unwavering obligation to uphold and defend their preconceived notions, declaring in advance their refusal to ever let their minds be changed by any amount of evidence that is ever revealed. Anti-science evangelists display their statement of faith proudly on their own forums as if admitting to a closed and dishonest mind wasn't something to be ashamed of or beg forgiveness for.
They don't want to do science. They want to undo science. They try to segregate experimental science from historical science, ignoring the fact that both are based on empirical observations and both can be checked with testable hypotheses. Worse, they want to redefine science in general so that astrology, subjective convictions of faith, and excuses of magic can supplant the scientific method whenever necessary in defense of their beliefs. They're only open to critical inquiry so long as it is not permitted to challenge the sacred scriptures nor vindicate any of the fields of study to which they're already opposed. In short, everything science stands for or hopes to achieve is threatened by the political agenda of these superstitious subversives. You can believe whatever you like. As long as you admit that it is a belief, you don't have to defend it. But if you assert your belief as a statement of fact, then you do have to defend it. Stating anything is definitely true when there is insufficient evidence to back it is dishonest. Making such positive proclamations without any evidence at all is a matter of faith. And promising in advance to forever defend an unsupportable a priori preference even against an avalanche of evidence against it is apologetics, which is all creation science really is. Ernst Haeckel was a pioneer zoologist and taxonomist whose numerous contributions to biology go largely unnoticed compared to a couple rather odd errors. First, he proposed that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, suggesting that embryonic development reflects the organism's evolutionary ancestry. To illustrate this, he produced about a hundred drawings of embryos at various stages, but he later admitted that about a half dozen of them were falsified due to a lack of visual references. The fact that any of his drawings were admittedly without references disgraced Haeckel's name in the annals of science. Darwin wrote that embryology contained compelling evidence of evolution. Creationists dismissed this on the assumption that Darwin's theory was inspired by Haeckel's fraudulent drawings and that consequently evolution is a fraud. But of course the truth is the other way around. Darwin referred to real embryos. Haeckel's drawings didn't even exist until years after Darwin's final publication. What is especially sad about Haeckel's embellishments was that they were unnecessary. Creationists adamantly complained that textbooks referred to as admittedly inaccurate drawings for so long, but for some reason they continue to accuse those authors of fraud, even when the books replace those drawings with microphotographs, which still indicate the same evolutionary parallels which Haeckel envisioned. Now, his original assumption that embryonic development would indicate adult species in an organism's ancestral history was proven false by 1910. But the fact Darwin recognized that embryology does provide testable confirmations and predictions of phylogeny was already evident before Haeckel ever picked up a pencil and has recently began a new embryological study known as EvoDevo. Among other discoveries, this field revealed the evolutionary origin of the feather as implied by transitional stages in the fossil record and summarized in the formation of feathers in developing chickens. It is no hoax that mammalian embryos temporarily have pharyngeal pouches, which are morphologically indistinguishable from the gill slits in modern fish embryos, and that the divergence of development from there matches what is indicated in the fossil record. This is fact, not fraud, and none of these facts should be true unless evolution were true also. A hundred years ago, the only human fossils yet known were a few Neanderthals, Cro-Magnon, and Homo erectus. Then an English attorney and amateur archaeologist presented bones and associated artifacts of what appeared to be an as yet unidentified species. British imperialists were generally accepting of the news, but French and American scientists were skeptical, doubting that the skull and jaw even belonged together. The British Museum touted the Piltdown Man as authentic, but the American Museum of Natural History displayed it only as a mixture of ape and man fossils, which is what it eventually turned out to be. There was no way to adequately examine such things back in 1915. Chemical tests, common today, didn't yet exist, and we didn't yet have a practical understanding of radiation, and before the first australopiths were discovered, we didn't know exactly what to expect of the links that were then still missing between humans and the other apes known at that time. But as we began filling in the gaps in human evolution with thousands of legitimate fossils, a pattern emerged which left Piltdown an increasingly obvious anomaly. 
Consequently, it was taken off display and stored away almost continuously for decades. It lost importance in most discussions because in light of everything else we discovered over the next few decades, it just never fit and was eventually dismissed from the list of potential human ancestors for that reason. As the years wore on, criticism arose against everyone who ever promoted the Piltdown Collection because there seemed to be so much wrong with it. Finally, in the 1950s, it was taken back out of the box and scrutinized via more modern means. First, fluorine dating revealed that it was much too recent and it was shown to have been chemically treated to give a false impression of its age and mineral composition. Then it was finally determined that the jaw must have come from an orangutan and that it had been deliberately reshaped with modern tools in a well-crafted and deliberate forgery. No one knows who did it either, and more importantly, why? Errors were already known and previously reported, but few ever suspected fraud because what would be the motive? Nearly everyone who stood accused was a man of high reputation and credentials. Maybe that was the motive. Maybe Piltdown Man was just a joke that had gone too far, but no one was laughing, and they weren't going to let it happen again. Even before the Piltdown hoax was officially exposed, an American paleontologist earned himself a lifetime of embarrassment when he found a tooth from an extinct species of pig in Nebraska and mislabeled it Hesperopithecus. The cheek teeth of pigs and peccaries are fairly similar to ape molars, and this one was badly worn such that Henry Fairfield Osborne initially believed it to be human. But the real embarrassment came when he publicized his find in a popular magazine rather than submitting it to peer review first. Creationists like to say that scientists were as duped by Nebraska man as they were by Piltdown man, but they weren't. Everyone who saw the fossil agreed that it did look like an ape's tooth, but with only a couple tentative exceptions, the entire contemporary scientific community either immediately rejected the accuracy of Osborne's assertions, or they demanded more substantial evidence to back them. He obviously couldn't provide that evidence despite another five years of searching. Eventually, he came to the sad realization that his fossil probably wasn't really human after all. His more skeptical associate, W.K. Gregory, then published a formal retraction in scientific journals. Creationists often accuse scientists of contriving the illustration of Nebraska Man and of conjuring a whole skeleton and facial construct out of a single tooth that was never even human in the first place. But the fact is, the magazine commissioned their own artist's impression, and scientists of the day, including Osborne himself, immediately reacted with harsh criticism. As a result, the article was never reprinted. Now, even though Piltdown Man was eventually exposed by evolution itself, and even though Nebraska Man was simple stupidity honestly and voluntarily admitted, and even though there were no other such examples in the history of paleoanthropology, creationists still portray both of these events and many others as if they were all part of some ridiculous unified international conspiracy intended to fool the world into believing evolution over creation ex nihilo. These paranoid propagandists also commonly contend, based only on these exceptions, that each of the thousands of fossils we found and confirmed before and since were all proven to be fakes too, even when the alleged authorities making these claims are already exposed charlatans currently imprisoned for fraud. Some 40 examples of Peking man were lost in World War II, but they were just part of a subset of Homo erectus and not the only evidence of human evolution. Modern man didn't just come from a monkey, but as a member of the infraorder Caterhini, he is a monkey by definition. Cro-Magnon wasn't a different species, they were just the first of our own species known in Europe, displacing the sons of Heidelberg man. Homo heidelbergensis was quite human because he was human, just not the same species we are. And it was never known from a single jawbone either, but from more than 4,000 bones representing nearly 30 individuals found in one side alone, and there are still dozens more. 
Their evident descendants, the Neanderthals, weren't just an old man with arthritis, either. We've found hundreds of Neanderthal men, women, and children, and even their DNA, which has provided proof that they were not part of our species. None of the experts believe that Lucy was a chimpanzee. All of the experts agree that Australopiths lie between humans and modern apes, or that they are simply basal human forms. Nebraska man was never accepted by the scientific community. Piltdown man was the only such fraud that ever duped scientists, and there's never been a fossil of New Guinea man because he is apparently a lie made up out of nothing by the author of this entirely fraudulent religious tract. Homo habilis was made up of at least two, if not more, different groups that do not belong together. It was a, a, an assemblage of, of several different types of animals put together and made into one. That's not entirely accurate. Actually, we found the remains of dozens of Homo habilis individuals and about a half dozen Homo rudifensis, too. These were once thought to be distinct hominine species, but they're so similar that many paleoanthropologists now consider them to be two variations of one species. Homo erectus, or Java man, isn't a half-man, half-ape, either. The man who discovered it admitted before he died that it was a fraud. He confessed that he had found an ape skull about 50 feet away from a human leg and two human skulls, and had mixed and matched to create a fictitious creature. Now you are a rotten liar. The two modern skulls weren't 50 feet away. They were found in a cave over 60 miles away. Despite the many lies repeated by Dwayne Gish and other creationists, Java Man was just one out of hundreds of Homo erectus individuals documented thus far. Also, Homo floresiensis wasn't microcephalic. There were a whole community of them. Similarly, Lucy wasn't assembled from bones found miles apart. Those were different individuals who each bore their own independent evidence of strict bipedality. And the total number of hominin fossils will no longer fit on a pool table either. Now you'll need a whole pool. Even though there's now been innumerable examples of natural selection acting under direct observation and a multitude of experiments gauging these, creationists are still trying to deny the first of these observances, the peppered maws of industrialized England. Creationists say that was a fraud too because the photos had to be staged. Not for the normal convenience of photography, but because these creationists claim that peppered maws don't rest on tree bark. But a 30-year study by Cambridge University revealed that, in fact, most of them do. You lied to me! To some people in this world, money is more important than truth. And if they have to lie to you to keep their paycheck coming in, they will lie to you. And so I am. Uh, if you do the research, you'll find that a Chinese farmer glued together the head of a bird and parts of a reptile and completely fooled the worldwide scientific community, including National Geographic, with what they thought was a transitional form. It was called Archaeoraptor. You're always wrong. Only a handful of scientists ever saw Archaeoraptor, but everyone who did noted that it was a composite piece, and the artistic amateurs who paid for the fossil were repeatedly warned that some parts of it might not even belong to the whole. Popular press foolishly scooped the story prior to peer review, where it was instantly exposed as a fake by multiple experts, and each submission to scientific journals was immediately rejected. Archaeoraptor therefore fooled no one in the scientific community at all. The irony there is that the tail of the alleged Archaeoraptor turned out to belong to the as yet undiscovered Microraptor, a four-winged and apparently gliding feathered dinosaur which turned out to be even more compelling proof of avian evolution from dinosaurs than Archaeopteryx was in Darwin's day. 
The scientific process of peer review seeks out and exposes fraud by design, but anti-evolutionist arguments are withheld from peer review because they are driven entirely by frauds, including misstatements, out-of-context quote mining, and contrived or distorted falsehoods and terms erroneously redefined into instigative reactionary nonsense unintelligible as anything other than propaganda. In short, if creationists knew how to expose a fraud, they wouldn't be creationists anymore. 